Welcome. Today we're talking with Nadine Pishkabal, who has been a gender advisor for 20 years and therefore was there when 1325 was passed. And she's been uh, with the UN, with the uh, International Red Cross and Red Crescent. She's been in the field. She's been in headquarters. She's been in the university. She's um, got lots of stories to tell. So without further ado, uh, Nadine, thank you so much for being here. And can you take us back to when 1325 was, was first passed and what, what things were like back then? Hi, um, thank you for having me. And uh, oh my God, 20 years ago when I was young and um, innocent in the field of gender, somehow full of hopes, um, yes, I was in New York at that time, uh, working for the Department of Peacekeeping Operations. And I remember um, in 2000, the incredible momentum um, we had in New York uh, with the adoption of the Resolution 1325. Um, and it was a time where the civil society, uh, non-governmental uh, organizations were, were working together with member states and the United Nations you know, the mix of practitioners and political actors. That was really a unique, I would say, moment in, in, in time. Um, and in 2000, at the Department of Peacekeeping Operations, we were discovering somehow um, that uh, peacekeeping operations could benefit from a gender perspective in their operations, right? Because it used to be very uh, military um, mm -hmm. in, in the very first operations, but slowly the multidimensional peacekeeping operations were deployed and you had all these big civilian you know components the human rights the political the civil affairs um the civilian police um that would uh, need a gender perspective to perform better so i think uh, the momentum allowed us us to create um positions of gender advisors uh, that would be embedded within peacekeeping operations. And I think the very first gender advisor were deployed to uh, East Timor, the peacekeeping mission in East Timor in, the, in 1999, 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, Kosovo and the Balkans, I think, they were the very first. So this was a great momentum. Um, and of course, and then you had the, um, the, the subsequent resolutions and... Um, and over the years, uh, the mobilization continued. And I, and, and I think, of course, that 1325, the, the, the original resolution, if I can call, call it, um, had a great potential and, and had a, a very transformative power. And, you know, has been translated in a lot of languages. Mm -hmm. Women all over the world have used that resolution and, and the subsequent resolutions as a, as a, as a great advocacy tool. But where do we stand today, 20 years later um i and um so and, i th i think yes and you've been ahead. on the front lines the whole time so yeah i mean yeah. it was interesting to see the at the very beginning when nobody really understood uh gender and peacekeeping uh we had a, a window of opportunity to create all these positions to deploy senior gender advisor um, and build up on their capacity. But what I find over the years is that there was, um, we lost somehow this momentum. Gender got diluted into other, you know, um, other work of the UN. 
um, gender got completely sidelined uh, mm. because other priorities came along. And, and you know, for example, uh, the fight against terrorism had taken over um, any kind of work you can do on gender. Also, you need a gender perspective in, in terrorism and counterterrorism. Okay, this is uh, not an expert here, but you know, mm -hmm. I, I think there might be a link between terrorism and toxic masculinity. So, mm -hmm. yes, gender and, can be an issue there as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also um, gender has been used as really as um, as a tool to understand hypermasculine environment, toxic masculinity. You can take peacekeeping context. You can take all the you know the military, the the terrorist organization. There is a there is, of course, a thread between all these different systems. Mm -hmm. um, and gender allowed us to deconstruct somehow patriarchy in all different uh, militarized institutions. Mm -hmm. But it, it was not easy all the time, of course, because when you start touching on the very structure of an organization like the United Nations, that mm -hmm. is a patriarchal organization in its very definition, it comes with certain challenges. Mm -hmm. Would you like to elaborate on those certain challenges? Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, um, I've, I've, I've been working a lot on uh, deconstructing language. Okay. And, um, you know, 1325 and the other resolutions, they provide a positive language um, uh, about women as actors of change, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. But this was not always translated into the official language of the United Nations. Because if you look at all the documents, the report from the Secretary General, the Security Council, you will see that um, the language um, describes very often women um, as vulnerable, mm -hmm. uh, put together with children in the vulnerable groups or group of beneficiaries, removing completely their uh, agency, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why... Um, I started when I was teaching at the UN affiliated University for Peace in Costa Rica. I was always doing an exercise with my students to uh, deconstruct gender in official documents of the UN. And it was very interesting because I was giving them, um, you know, like a report uh, from the Security Council and asked them, what, what can you tell me about the language? But very few people, very few students could see exactly what was wrong because we are so used to um, the language, a certain form of language that who would question that women and children are part of the vulnerable group, right? So you see, we, and that's why we started to pay attention to uh, somehow how we perpetuate harmful stereotypes through language. And this has been one of my hobby, if I can say that, Mm -hmm. deconstructing language and trying to um, to look at where we could improve the way we express ourselves so women could um, be uh, considered mainly as actors powerful human beings uh, mm -hmm. who could be part of um, you know the search for solution in the conflict or um, a part of peace negotiations because if you look today how many women do participate in in um, peace negotiations how many women are sitting around the table look look in in different countries you you know you look in mali uh, the most recent also um, political transitions or in the middle east and so why somehow i feel that um, 
we have reached and maybe the the specialists the the, the women working on on security uh, council uh, resolution 1325 won't like what i'm saying but i think we have reached um, the limits of what this resolution can bring because mm -hmm. those resolutions are not binding right i mean they're 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 great advocacy tools as i said yeah but we need to go deeper um in how we can what what how can we ensure that we can take our feminist um, language and perspective into the work of the United Nations, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Because, um, yes. Yeah, I was going to say, I read an excellent paper that you did, I think, in 2010, mm. precisely around the language of vulnerability. And I, I have to say, um, having done quite a lot of uh, women's leadership development, one of the key areas is agency and you know it comes mm -hmm. with this mindset of you know that we get from a lifetime of of inputs i i completely agree with you um so yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. so what do you think needs to happen next urgently if if the uh, twenty five has met its limit well um you know i was thinking about that uh because I'm, I'm, I'm trying all the time to see how, why do we, we continue to, um, to work within the patriarchal system without having our own um, space and language and, um, and, and, and leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And it reminds me um, uh, of um, a, a quote that was, an, um, I don't remember exactly, but it was an Australian professor who was talking about the, 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 the prime minister from New Zealand, uh, mm -hmm. Jacinda Ardern, and she said, the problem is that women's leadership is considered in relation to male leadership rather than on its own terms. Mm. And I think that's exactly what is missing is I, I don't see very much, and I hope students are listening to this talk and, and, and can start working on deconstructing patriarchy, which will mean also having a look at language. Because you see, everywhere you will look at women uh, constantly evaluated according to the masculine norm of reference, right? Have you noticed that we are either too something, so mm -hmm. too emotional, too soft, too masculine, too weak, or not enough? Mm -hmm. not, in, not strong enough, not presidential enough, not competent enough. So, you know, if we, if we don't start looking at the good practices of uh, female, female leadership, identify mm -hmm. role models, define our own language, impose ourselves, impose ourselves in our own space, and most importantly, distance ourselves from the male, uh, what that author called, I think, the male performance of power. Yeah. We will continue to work within this, this institution, um, not questioning the language that is used, that is disempowering women, and mm -hmm. we can have another resolution next year if you want. But it won't change, you know, the way um, the, the patriarchal society is functioning. And look at patriarchy, it's very resilient. It can reinvent itself. Yeah. Uh, make plain tricks, make promises, and and we, how many resolutions do we have now? And and what 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 are the results worldwide in terms of the number of women participating in peace processes, for instance? Yeah, yeah, it it, it really is um, 
you know, we to, to be able to solve these really complex problems that we got in the world, we need to have an interdependent culture, which means that everybody has to be involved. And we keep on going back to the hierarchy, which is, you know, explained Western civilization, for example. So, you know, it's, it's got quite a history. Yeah, but and but I think it's, we, it's all about mindset and, and awareness, you know? And I think we, we need to, to adopt, um, how, do you, how do you say in proper English, a feminist-informed gender analytical perspective, right? Sounds good to me. Because the, yeah, that, that's, I, I like that expression because it, it contains everything we, we need somehow. So I think we have to stop taking for granted uh, the language that has been imposed on us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was um, last time I was um, speaking to some students and I, I was also uh, giving them the, um, you remember that book by uh, the feminist activist Audrey Lorde, um, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, of course, in a completely different context. But that's exactly, we need to define, to develop our own tools and uh, define our own space that are not used by the men. And I think we're running into cycles these days because I have, because really we haven't been innovative enough. And um, I I don't misunderstand what I'm saying in terms of, um, I mean, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. It's extremely difficult. I mean, you know, the UN top leadership is still male. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have a few women who managed to reach the, the senior leadership. Um, but most of the women who are at the top uh, of the United Nations, they don't use that space to promote other women um, because maybe some of them managed to reach the, the top of the organization thanks to the men. Playing by men's rules, yeah. Uh, absolutely. So you don't want to lose the, the, so, somehow the fake protection uh, of patriarchy Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you know, I keep repeating to see changes. I mean, like, uh, why do you think I'm, I'm also getting a little bit tired working on gender? Because I've spent my entire life repeating things. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, nobody wants to understand gender because you, you really, when you apply a gender perspective, you're going to really um, go deep down into um, the deconstructing the culture of the organization. And, no, and nobody really wants that, you know. Yeah. Why would the men in power start to share that power or see but, things? There is no incentive for yeah. sharing power, you know. But, you know, a, apart from just, uh, say, the leadership culture and the mindset and the language and all that stuff, uh, you've also worked on issues of, of violence, mm-hmm. gender-based violence. And, um, you know, what do you think about the Me Too um, movement? I mean, it's the sort of thing that it's been going on for years, and actually there was no voice around that, and then suddenly there started to be voice. I I think every single opportunity that um, which gives women a voice Mm -hmm. uh, have to be welcome. You know, when women start to speak up, um, and it's, it's amazing the stories we've heard since Me Too, how much it's like, uh, I mean, I think it's tragic to see how many women just kept silent because, because they were afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see that in the culture of the United Nations as well. You know, women live in fear um, and you don't want to speak up because you may lose your contract, you may be harassed, you, there will be some retaliation. 
And of course, the United Nations has developed this uh, whistleblower protection policy, but it doesn't, it's, it looks good on paper. Everything but looks good on paper. Fear and innovation go, don't go well together at all. Exactly. But you know, you have to be willing to risk when, when you're a leader, uh, you, the problem is that a lot of leaders I met at the UN, they're so concerned and focused on their career mm-hmm. that um, if you start to be too innovative or if you start to waste to win, maybe good for your career in the patriarchal organizations, right? Because you may lose power, you may lose the privileges you have. And why would you, you know, um, open a new space to mm-hmm. women when uh, things, you know, th- things were good as they were before without questioning anything. And you know what is also I find very interesting? Um, and that's part of my inspiration comes from the work of uh, feminist Cynthia Enloe. Uh, the American author who has worked a lot on deconstructing patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And Cynthia is all the time asking feminist questions, uh, questioning everything. And I remember when, um, you know, she said uh, someone was criticizing her for being too radical. And she was saying, yes, of course, I'm, I'm a feminist, I'm radical. But do you really know what radical means? It comes from uh, the, the Greek root meaning we asking root question. We go deep, deep, deep into the meaning of things and situations. So mm-hmm. yes, we're radical. But you see, that's why I always go back to languages that people don't understand the meaning of some words and keep repeating and, and it does a lot of damage. So th- just to go back to your question about the Me Too movement, I think we need to see more movement like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, and, and again, women have to, uh, take their space back and speak up. But I'm telling you, it's, um, it's difficult. I've seen in, in, in different countries and, and where I am now in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, where women have a space, but, you know, culturally, it may be difficult for them to, to speak up or to talk about sexual violence uh, mm-hmm. or abuses that they've uh, been through. Uh, because of the, the the norms, the gender norms in place in the country, so um, so you have to somehow help them to uh, claim that space, but um, to make to sure heal. that they're safe. Yeah. Say again. To heal as well. Yeah, to, to heal, but to make make sure that uh, it's their own decision and they're safe in their own space and they define. Uh, their the space and the language they want to use according to their own terms. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I, I feel really grateful for all the work that you've done over these past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that since both of us are in, say, the later stages of our career, we should keep on talking <laughs> and, and do something radical. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. Yeah, you know, figure it out. Um, Okay, so just a couple more things. Um, how did you get started in working in as a gender advisor? Um, just very quickly, say how you. You know, um, I think when I my first humanitarian mission was in Somalia in the nineties. Um, and then I continue going, that was with the um, International Committee of the Red Cross before I joined the UN. 
And I think I was looking at societies, the way women were treated, the, the power of the men, and I was trying to understand what was going on. So I decided many, uh, many years after my first mission in Somalia to go back to study. And I did a PhD in political sciences on uh, the gender uh, shift uh, of, uh, how, how was that? There was the um, shift of gender roles from conflict to post-conflict. Hmm. And following that, um, I think it was just the, the opportunity of being at the right time and the right place. When I was in New York in 2000, mm-hmm. working for the Department of Peacekeeping Operation, doing my PhD, starting my PhD at that time, and wanting to be part of that big movement around 3025 and bringing that knowledge of 3025 into the institution. So I think mm-hmm. I started like that. And remember, gender advisor was not really even a job. We didn't even have a job description at that time because it was so new. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's just being on the right time, on the right spot uh, with an interest and your own feminist commitment and knowing, oh, but that gender perspective, we have to bring it into the, the peacekeeping uh, operations, right? Mm-hmm. And then I continue over the years to get specialized on gender. And then I was deployed to Haiti as the senior gender advisor for the peacekeeping mission and Chad. And then I continued like that. So I think that, that would be the, yeah, that's the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, can you share a favorite quote of yours with us? You've already shared a couple of quotes, but yeah, I love specifically. Quotes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, my favorite quotes um, that my students really love uh, was is the following one um, it's it's a feminist motto I think that was used in the in the 90s it says I speak fluent patriarchy but it's not my mother tongue <laughs> and you know why I love that that uh, quote because that's exactly what I was teaching my students is to pay attention to language mm-hmm. you need to speak the language of the patriarchal organizations if you want first to be able to work within the organization, understand how it works, and then be able to deconstruct it. And I keep that sentence all the time I'm working um, for the UN or the Red Cross because it's the same patriarchal organization. Because that's exactly, you need to be extremely, extremely strategic when you work on those issues. And you can't confront an institution like that. You know, when I was working with military, do you see me arriving, talking to military with a of feminist theory? No, no, no. Let's be extremely pragmatic. Mm-hmm. Speak the same language of your audience. And then you can maybe see some transformation in their understanding and behavior. So that's why I became extremely strategic over the years. Because you cannot win that battle mm-hmm. without being a strategic in an extremely difficult environment. Well, speaking of winning battles, can you just give an example of, say, once that you felt like, ah, yes? Um, well, I think it was um, many years ago when I was working as the senior gender advisor in New York for the Department of Peacekeeping Operation. Um, I think we had um, a structure in the different missions, peacekeeping missions in the field, in different countries where the senior, you know, a senior gender advisor needs to be working um, at the, what, senior advisor should be working at the level of the head of mission. 
-hmm. But the way some, you know, middle management guys who didn't understand uh, gender issues put the post <coughs> of gender advisor at the bottom of, let's say, the humanitarian pillar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a soft issue. Children, gender, everything is just dumped into the humanitarian pillar. So I remember that I was not very happy with that situation. So I went to see the head of the Department of Peacekeeping Operation. And I, I had a nice um, diagram with me on a piece of paper explaining the different relation, why, why I thought the gender advisor should be at the top of the organization to have an overview of everything. Because if you want to do gender mainstreaming in a patriarchal organization of the UN that is very hierarchical, you don't do bottom to top, you do, you do top, you know, from top to bottom. Hmm. And he listened to me, and because I was explaining, you know, in terms of operations, the difference he would make, and I had my little diagram and everything, he said, okay, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's have Haiti as a pilot, where you move the senior gender advisor to the top of the mission, uh, and I'm going to, as the head of the department, I'm going to send instructions. And of course, that was for me a small victory, first to get the, the most senior leadership on board, mm -hmm. who understood and who was willing to follow on um, is, uh, you know, saying, I'm going to send instruction. And he did it. And then I managed to invite him uh, to participate um, in a panel with gender advisors from the field. So because in patriarchal organization, when you have male leadership, showing an interest, being present, supporting your work, it makes all the difference. So yeah. that's why it was a small victory just to get the interest of the top. And it was so funny because once the head of uh, the Department of Peacekeeping Operation had said, let's do a pilot in Haiti, I want the senior gender advisor um, sitting in the office of the head of mission, the middle management was okay. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is, you know? You can't yeah. win the battle without engaging the leadership. Yeah, that's Ever. the same in any change initiative. You have to have the top <laughs> leadership on board. Yeah. It's so exhausting, you know, because you, you, you need, the, in a hierarchical organization like the UN, if you don't have the leadership on board, it's just a waste of time and energy. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, you keep repeating things. Nothing is sustainable. And then after a while, people lose interest. Uh, and, and it's what I keep repeating is sometimes gender is so well mainstreamed that it disappears. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Um, so uh, I guess thank you very much for, Anytime. for dedicating time uh, to this uh, conversation. Really mm -hmm. insightful. Um, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Yes, absolutely. We can continue the discussion and um, it would be a pleasure. Thank you so okay. much for giving me an opportunity to rant about my feminist gender perspective. We need passionate <laughs> people. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. The new normal, it's anything but, and yet we still connect, we talk, we try to fix the world. Thank you for joining me in this conversation about the state of the women, peace, and security agenda on the occasion of the 20th anniversary of UN Security Council Resolution 1325. And thanks as well to my guests for sharing their expertise, wisdom, and time. If you enjoy meeting these wonderful folks as much as I do, please subscribe to us on Apple, iTunes, or YouTube, and follow us on Spotify or SoundCloud. 
I hope to see you again on another episode of the mini series, Tea at 1325.